From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Idols. last episode of our past season, then you heard the news. News that I hate to break to anyone who missed it. My partner in this project, Catherine Campbell, has decided to step away as our editor-at-large. I've said it before and I'll say it again, Dirty Spoon was, in nearly every way, Catherine's show. She sourced the stories, picked the writers, and got them into shape. She decided what stories would be in what episodes and truly sculpted the shape of this radio show and our literary journal. When Dirty Spoon began, it was just a blog, a place where I could put unedited interviews that might have been unfairly truncated by publications I was writing for at the time. Me being dyslexic, the copy was always just barely legible, since I typically rely on my editors to help me sort through my own mess. But Catherine, a longtime friend, came out of nowhere to voluntarily edit my posts. 
After about a year of this, I asked her if she would be willing to come on board and help me turn Dirty Spoon into a full-fledged culinary journal, sourcing memoir-based stories from around the culinary world. I'm endlessly proud of what we've been able to create over the past five years we've been running the journal, and in the four years that we've been running the show on WPVM. But most of all, I'm grateful that I had the chance to work with Catherine for those five years. Her taste, professionalism, and penchant for those deep stories with killer punchlines really gave us a deeper look into what and how we eat. As we like to say, she helped us focus on what's under the table instead of what's on it. We're still on season break at the moment, regrouping and figuring out what the show is going to look like without Catherine at the helm. In the meantime, I'd like to spend the hour today playing through Catherine's greatest hits. The first episode we ever aired held Catherine's first audio piece, a little story about cooking shows. Here she is reading her story, Remote Cravings. Yay, cooking shows. Okay. The first cooking show I ever saw was by pure accident. I noticed it not through the ways we normally discover cooking shows, at the touch of a remote or through a friend's recommendation, but I saw my first cooking show on a screen within a screen. At the age of 10, while watching the 80s classic, The Goonies, I came to the scene where one of the young heroes, Chunk, is captured by a villainous family and tied up in a basement with the family's well-meaning and innocent brother, Sloth. Chunk watches as Sloth is fixated on the television in front of him, oblivious to this new stranger in the basement. That's because Sloth is watching a woman frost a chocolate cake. Chocolate, he says with longing. The woman on the television screen presents the cake, its layers of frosting perfectly shaped. Of course, the rest of the movie was great and magical, and as a 10-year-old, I loved it, but that moment stuck with me. I couldn't help but wonder, did a show like that really exist? A show where a woman could teach me how to make chocolate cake? At the time, our family didn't have cable television. So the simple question sent me on a journey to figure out who the mystery woman was in the background. And this journey would take me decades to uncover the answer. It was Julia Child. And unfortunately, at that time in 2005, she had passed away. My second brush for cooking shows was when I stumbled upon an episode of Iron Chef. The title caught my eye. The premise drew me in. Cooks competing in a time limit? Using one ingredient that had to appear in every meal course? That was it. I strapped in for the ride. As I watched the chefs competing for the title, I tried to follow them, but had a little difficulty. They moved so swiftly among utensils and burners, momentarily pressing the button of the blender or quickly sampling a sauce. That was the moment I realized that what I loved most about a show like this was the exact same reason why I love a novel. It's complete fantasy, at least for me. I'm your typical white American woman. I have privilege and access to certain foods, kitchen space, tools, and tech to help me cook. I own an ice cream maker in the color of red. I own two crock pots. I've been considering one of those Instapots too. Who knows? But the one thing I lack is time. Time to prep. Time to chop. Time to watch a casserole begin to bubble in the oven. 
Time to grow everything I need. Time to talk and laugh with guests as they wait and watch the pans of food simmering behind me. Time to sit down at a table and savor every bite. Because that would also require time to shop, time to visit multiple stores, time to make the money to buy the ingredients, time to wash the dishes, and time to wipe down the counters. Isn't it easier to watch someone else cook for 60 minutes? Through my screen, I can live vicariously, almost tasting the dishes from Vietnam, Austria, New Zealand, and I'm okay with that. I'd rather watch a show where a flawlessly frosted cake appears after a few minutes than a show that mimics my own reality, where dinner is often raisin bran and milk. After discovering Iron Chef, the landscape broke open. It was like the rest of the world existed in this one place, and I had been given the key to join them. Suddenly, everywhere I turned, there was a new cooking show for me. Road trips to diners, brave souls trying head cheese or matsunabe, famous Michelin-starred chefs smiling while presenting wasabi sorbet to an intimate group of elite jet-setters. This begged the question, what happened between the woman frosting the cake on the screen then and today where we have dozens upon dozens of cooking shows? What is it exactly about making food that we find so compelling we keep our eyes glued to a screen? I mean, it's food, something that disappears into our mouths, never to return with the same shape, the same color, the same taste, What is it about crafting, chopping, sauteing, baking, plating that is so alluring on our television screens? I assumed the history of cooking shows began with Julia Child. After all, she is considered to be the godmother of food TV, the way Patti Smith is the godmother of punk. With Julia's serene, non-fussy way of moving about the kitchen, She broke the mold of glittery, shiny, sparkling kitchen counter life that was so prevalent in mid-century advertising. We loved and still love Julia Child because she was, well, human. With the camera still rolling, she dropped spoons, spilled ingredients, fumbled when moving a pot from a burner or pouring liquid in a dish. But she wore pearls the whole time. Julia showed women they could be themselves, make mistakes, yet still contain an innate sense of grace. Because that's what food and food preparation is, from a simple loaf of bread and cheese to a complicated multi-course meal, it's an experience of grace, a salvation. But she wasn't the first TV host. Cooking shows technically began on the radio and transitioned to television. A radio listener, if they were in France, for example, could listen to Dr. Edouard de Pamian's weekly program on Radio Paris. The food scientist and author of a dozen cookbooks would take to the airwaves, telling stories of his kitchen experiences and providing recipes that were accessible to the home cook. Meanwhile, over in the U.S., a fictional Betty Crocker, voiced at one time or another by 13 different actresses, hosted the first American food broadcast. The Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air, yes, that was the full name, started in Minnesota on one little radio station, 
and went national in 1926. Housewives and families would tune in while Betty answered questions and gave cooking tips. The Betty Crocker Show wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan trend like many of the types of food shows we see today on, say, The Food Network or Bravo. The radio broadcast lasted for 25 years, into the late 1940s, when television became popular and began to take over. This became the time of the in-studio cooking show, where hosts would demonstrate recipes and preparation instructions. The goal during the mid-century was to bolster the everyday housewife's confidence in her own cooking. With a little effort, she could replicate the recipe on the screen down to the last sprig of parsley and feed her happy family. This was the era of instruction, where recipes were pretty paint by numbers. Then morning variety shows adopted segments and the rise of the cooking star began to emerge. Soon, television networks realized the draw of cooking shows, so they created entire channels dedicated to a lifestyle centered around food, and competitions began. Americans spend thousands of hours each week watching cooking shows. In 2010, a Harris report revealed that eight in every 10 adults watch food shows. At the time, TV personality Rachel Ray dominated the networks with her reliable 30-minute meals. And today, thanks to the streaming services such as Netflix and web series on YouTube, we binge-watch dramas such as The Great British Baking Show and Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, clocking an average of two to three episodes at a time. We have friends over for viewing parties. We crowd together on the couch for Worst Cooks in America or Chopped. Our choices of shows range from Family Values Middle America on The Pioneer Woman to The Exotic in A Cook Abroad. Women, Southerners, and reality competitions are the major themes running throughout our food TV obsession. Even Marvel, yes, the comic book company, recently launched a cooking show. Marvel Eats the Universe is a show featuring pop culture influencers and recipes inspired by comic book history. In episode one, for example, they make Phoenix hot chicken and egg, based on Jean Grey and her stepson Cable. I cross my fingers for maybe some Daredevil Hell's Kitchen pizza, because I'm simple at heart. So, which cooking stories get told, and which ones don't? Anyone can publish a cookbook, but a cooking show requires a personality, charisma, someone you love to watch or love to hate. Or better yet, say the producers, put an odd couple together, add ingredients, and voila, you have a show for which hundreds of thousands of people will tune in, at least for one season. It's not about the chemistry of the food, but the chemistry of the people on screen. It's no longer about knowledge, but the delivery of that knowledge. We probably won't see my favorite local baker on TV anytime soon. Would we today as a people still be satisfied, entertained, enthralled to watch Julia Child drop a spoon or take a minute to put on oven mitts? Or would we turn to our smartphones and browse Instagram? When I watch food shows, I'm hungry. Not for the food necessarily on the screen, but the time I'll never have to discover those tastes in real life. I tell myself I feel full after an episode, that I'm satisfied to know that that particular dish exists in the world, that some other man, woman, or child is enjoying it to the last bite. 
but I know it's a lie. For other viewers, maybe it's a different craving. They're drawn to a specific ingredient, or a cook, or a unique environment in which the host still manages to turn food from a science into a work of art. I don't know where cooking shows will go next. Virtual reality looms on the horizon, and some brands are currently working behind the scenes trying to figure out a way to physically deliver food to your door at the same time it appears on screen. In the meantime, I'll be here on the couch with my bowl of cereal, pressing the remote, flipping endlessly through all of my options to observe the next great meal just out of my reach. You make me happy, I would write on a banner flying over the city
possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. One of the strangest trends peeking around the corner of our not-too-distant culinary future is printable foods. There's already a number of companies working on the idea, and I still don't know how I feel about it. In this 2018 piece, Catherine dug into the idea. Here she is reading it. Here's her story, print job. The industry tells me to imagine it. Picture it. Close my eyes and wait. Can you taste it? The possibility of it all? I tell them no. No, I can't taste it. In fact, what they're telling me is waiting on the widespread horizon for the food industry terrifies me. Let's step back for a second. There are a couple of different ways we're trying to increase food supply and save time on a large scale. One solution, of course, is GMOs. That's a topic for another day. And the second solution is that we're trying to increase supply and save time with ingredients that seem impossible to pull out of thin air. 
but we can because today we have a machine called the 3D printer. You're probably familiar with the concept by now. Within the last 10 years, 3D printing has been pushing innovation in certain industries to their limits, especially when it comes to manufacturing supplies, medical devices, and toy pieces. 3D printing is appealing because it's super affordable in the long run. And like getting solar panels for your home, it's an investment up front that can pay off in dividends from saved costs later. Now, companies and restaurants are venturing into 3D printing for food. When I think of 3D printing for food, I immediately imagine ingredients akin to something like freeze-dried ice cream. You know, the kind of crumbly, silver-wrapped foods they feed astronauts on space stations. But as I started down the rabbit hole of research into the 3D printed food world, I discovered a few pioneers, people who are obsessed with printing and what it can do. Remember Willy Wonka's factory and the piece of gum that contains a delicious three-course meal you can taste in a few chews? 3D printer companies are going after that kind of compact experience, making something big from something small, practically non-existent, a few base materials. And the makers of 3D food printing solutions are specifically seeking to answer the same question we all have. If we're pursuing the idea of technology replacing a limited food supply, whether it's because of seasonality or geographic availability or rising costs, how can we replicate the freshness and depth of experience? Is that even possible? One company believes it is. At the forefront of the 3D food movement is one pioneer who has dominated the press, Natural Machines, creators of the, quote, Foodini. Lynette Kuzma co-founded the company in Barcelona in 2012, and they launched as the first 3D food printer to make both sweet and savory foods using, get this, fresh ingredients. They first focused on sweets, which were easy to print, but eventually proved too expensive to offer the public at a price that would be profitable for them. And then they wanted to turn their attention to more wholesome foods. In 2014, Natural Machines launched Foodini to the world, a 4.7-inch high Android-powered 3D food printer, something that could easily sit on your kitchen counter. Foodini users just need a Wi-Fi connection to choose recipes from Natural Machines' community website, which they can also do remotely from a smartphone or tablet. They can also choose from a library of food shapes or design their own to print. Up to five food capsules can be loaded into the printer at one time, which doesn't sound very appetizing, but wait. They have to fill it with their own rough ingredients. It also has different nozzle sizes to accommodate different textures, which means additives such as maltodextrin is no longer needed in the food to hold its shape. Foodini isn't suited to print every type of food. You're not going to get a seven-course meal with the press of a button, nor was it ever intended to do that. Rather, there are certain foodstuffs that a 3D printer excels at. Think about crackers and certain pasta shapes. Foodini's tiniest nozzle can print as thin as a half millimeter, which would be almost impossible to achieve by hand. And therefore, they answer my biggest question. Why would anyone want to print 3D food if it doesn't solve a supply problem or a problem of time? The Foodini isn't too different from a regular 3D printer, but instead of printing with plastics, it deploys edible ingredients squeezed out of stainless steel capsules. In essence, this is a mini food manufacturing plant shrunk down to the size of an oven. 
The Fudini isn't trying to solve world hunger. They're just trying to make the world of the professional or home chef a little easier and more convenient. But at first glance, I think it's something that was invented for lazy people. Press a button and voila, your ingredients are there. Instant ravioli, crackers, pasta. In their words, Natural Machines says that the Fudini is valuable because, quote, today, too many people eat too many convenience foods, processed foods, packaged foods, or pre-made meals. Many of these with ingredients that are unidentifiable to the common consumer versus homemade, healthy foods and snacks. But there is the problem of people not having enough time to make homemade foods from scratch. Fudini is a kitchen appliance that takes on the difficult parts of making food that is hard or time-consuming to make fully by hand. By 3D printing the food, you can automate some of the assembly or finishing steps of home cooking, thus making it easier to create freshly made meals and snacks. Take an example of ravioli. How often have you made homemade ravioli? I know that I've never made it. (laughs) Now, Fudini will print individual raviolis for you. The 3D printing of food, in this case, creating a layer of pasta, a layer of filling, and covering it with a layer of pasta again, is assembling the ravioli. The same as you would do by hand, except the Fudini automates it. You don't have to manually do all the work. In fact, you can turn away while it does it. After Fudini is done, put the ravioli in boiling water to cook it, or you can even bake them in the oven if that's your thing. Currently, the device only prints the food, which must then be cooked as usual, and the Fudini sells to professional kitchens for around $4,000. Not exactly something that a professional chef at home can afford. But they're designing a future model that will prepare the food and cook it and produce it ready to eat. This is where the entire food industry could pivot, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, Fudini is focused on the next phase, trying to solve the problem of having people supply their own ingredients for the printer. They're working with major food manufacturers to create pre-packaged capsules that can just be loaded into the machine to make food, even though they assure us these will be free of preservatives with a shelf life limited to five days. It could be the next blue apron or sun basket, a meal kit for your printer. It's hard for me to like it. But we have to remember that just a few decades ago, our culture had the same issue and apprehension around the microwave. When it was introduced, we assumed our food could be poisoned with radiation. But fast forward 30 years, and now there's one in every household. This is real food with real fresh ingredients, and it's just prepared using a new technology. You could make the argument against 3D printer ingredients as you could about processed food. It may not be the freshest or support the farm-to-table concept, but it does save time, and time is very scarce. Right now, 3D printed food seems more frivolity, a way to mix art with technology, rather than a way to solve food supply issues. Food Inc., I-N-K, for example, premiered the world's first 3D printed pop-up restaurant. The Food Inc. gastronomic pop-up experience takes place in an immersive, futuristic space filled with wall-to-wall visuals and AI-composed music. Everything is completely produced by 3D printing, including furniture, utensils, and yes, the food. The food does look incredible. Think intricate flower designs, gorgeous pastry cups, professionally sculpted pâtés. Their tagline is, quote, taste tomorrow today. 
but they haven't posted or appeared anywhere since last spring, over a year ago, just after they began their world tour. It seems they have disappeared into thin air, and their future is shaky. Elaborate pop-up events aside, there are smaller, direct-to-consumer technologies available now. The Hamacher Schlemmer catalog features a 3D pancake printer. Using a combination of compressed air pressure and vacuum suction, it reproduces drawings and designs on a griddle by strategically dispensing your batter. You can just select the design at the touch of a button. Imagine making pancakes shaped like a spaceship or that look exactly like the Mona Lisa. It's that whimsical and fun, but again, it's as helpful as an ice cream maker when it comes to deepening the food experience. And it's definitely not solving any major issues. Will 3D food printing be possible to scale on a mass production level that can feed a community in need? Probably not anytime soon. But there are whispers among the community, and I'm sure that somewhere at this very moment, in a lab, someone is pushing a button and patiently waiting, testing, printing, and making notes for yet another test sample of food that will usher us into an era for which most of us may not be ready. Corrections. I 
You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, and in case you're just tuning in, we are spending the entire hour listening back to some of the best stories from our former editor-in-chief and co-host, Catherine Campbell. She stepped down at the end of last season to move on to bigger and better things, but we recognize that Dirty Spoon wouldn't be here without her, and we couldn't be more grateful. When she left, she was in the middle of a project I thought was just brilliant. She would go to reputable and award-winning chefs around the country and ask them to tell her about their first cookbook, the one that really got them in the kitchen. One of those conversations was with the chef of one of my favorite Charleston eateries, Shay New. A tiny restaurant in a shotgun house, they serve the smallest possible menu of the most elegantly made French foods in the Southeast. And that tiny menu, every single one is handwritten and it changes daily. It's just fantastic. Here's Catherine's profile of Chef Jill Mathias from our September 2020 episode. Jill Mathias, owner and chef of Shane New in Charleston, South Carolina, has dramatically changed the way she cooks several times throughout her career, as most chefs do. The reason? Inspiration from the cookbooks she has read at different phases in her life. It's like a band that you thought you hated, and then all of a sudden you're like, how come I never listened to them before, she explains. It's the same for cookbooks. You say to yourself, why have I never read this book before? Born in Wisconsin, but raised in Fargo, Moorhead, North Dakota, Matthias says she remembers receiving her most influential cookbook, Moosewood Cookbook, by Molly Katzen, when she was only 18 years old. It was really one of the first ones that I, I picked up, and I was like, oh, this is really fun, like, I like this, and... According to Matthias, it was the initial cookbook that pulled her into cooking and excited her about the craft. Moosewood is a vegetarian cookbook that has inspired many, including Matthias, to prepare simple, healthy, and seasonal food. She said one of her most vivid memories of cooking from the book was in the woods of Minneapolis with her friend and her friend's father. I also had a friend who... Like in high school, in the beginning of college, whose um, dad uh, was a theology professor, and so he would go on these weekend sabbaticals to like uh, different colleges and stuff, and just kind of sit in the woods and write. And sometimes we would go and visit him, and we would just cook, and we always cook from this this book. It's so strange. And then we would also do a lot of Middle Eastern cooking, and it was so weird. But that is really where I was. I really, I'm really enjoying this. And then it just turned into really loving to cook for people and having dinner parties and having people come over because it's, I mean, it just brings people together. It's like conversation and, you know, yeah. comedy ensues. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's such an amazing way to always just bring people together, whether it's for sustenance or relaxation or celebration. Escaping the cold winters in Minneapolis, Matthias moved to Charleston nearly 20 years ago on a whim. I just knew that I wanted to be here, Matthias says. It all happened quickly. She attended culinary school at Johnson & Wales, but after graduating, she didn't sit still for long. Matthias moved to an island in Puerto Rico for a while, resided in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and spent her winters in Rome and traveling to other faraway places. But I've always come back to Charleston, she says. The city she couldn't permanently abandon, 
is where she decided to create Shay New about five years ago with the help of her partners, the owners of Bin 152, a gorgeous wine bar on Lower King Street in Charleston. So they talked to me about it, asked me if I wanted to be partners, and basically, um, you know, present me with the whole idea of what Shane U would be, the thoughts of what it would be, and it was like my dream restaurant. So it just, so yeah, it just, it wasn't like, oh, this is going to be our location. It would, you know, it's, it sort of happened organically. Built in a house from 1835, she knew was definitely a labor of love for Matthias and her husband. The space was dilapidated and needed a complete renovation, which Matthias says took about a year to completely finish. Chenou, which focuses on southern France, northern Spanish, and northern Italian cuisine, offers a daily rotating menu of local ingredients, the same for both lunch and dinner, which only consists of two appetizers, two entrees, and two desserts. There's, there's no bells or whistles to this yeah. food, but at the end of the day, that to me is um, sometimes really difficult to do. Oh, yeah. Um, but it also, like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be crazy and it shouldn't have to be hard. And, it, and we, where we live in Charleston, there's such a huge, amazing abundance of seafood and farmland um, that it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to let those ingredients kind of shine and do what they do. I mean, yeah. You know. The restaurant takes the simplicity Matthias learned from Moosewood and combines it with another cookbook she says inspired her along the way, French Feast, 299 Traditional Recipes for Family Meals and Gatherings by Stéphane Renaud. As a cookbook that has influenced the way she currently approaches cuisine, French Feast evokes the considerable pleasures of the French table and captures the essence of traditional French cooking that you can always find at Chez Nou in a simple, straightforward manner. When asked which cookbook she is currently reading, Matthias reflects on La Mère Brazia, the mother of modern French cooking by Eugenie Brazia. She was the first chef to have three Michelin stars and then went on to get have six Michelin stars um, and obviously for sure the first woman to do that too so yeah um, it's it's a pretty again it's it's very it's a very interesting cookbook in the beginning it's part of it is um, autobiographical and then it goes into the recipes but you also have to maybe have a little knowledge of what you're doing because she never wrote anything down so whoever because she died while she, this book was being written um, so when they finished the book I think they would just went by some of her notes that weren't very exact which is great because that's how I cook it's very instinctual the way that I cook so so far those instincts haven't led patrons or Matthias astray Catherine Campbell talking to Jill Mathias as part of her cookbook project, asking chefs about their cookbooks, you know, the ones that really hooked them. Another notable chef she spoke to for that project was right here in our hometown of Asheville, Chef Jacob Sessoms of Table. A pioneer of Asheville's fine dining scene, Jacob was actually Asheville's first James Beard nominee. 
Here's Catherine in conversation with him. When Jacob Sessoms moved to Asheville, North Carolina from his hometown of Nashville, Tennessee in 1993, he knew he wanted to be a chef. But unfortunately at the time, there were no schools in the area where he could learn the necessary skills. So I went to the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan and worked in the city. And it was at a time where I could actually teach my chef and sous chefs in the restaurants I worked in in New York how to make biscuits. Because they didn't know, because they were all New Yorkers. or Yeah, um, biscuits and grits are like... Yeah, like and what? I mean, you would think like, it it's just ones. biscuits and grits. <laughs> You're right, yeah, exactly. Like, this is really, you don't know how to make this, but... It was around the same time when his dad gave him The Gift of Southern Cooking by Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock. It's the cookbook Jacob credits as his inspiration for learning and honing his craft. Um, my dad gave me this that cookbook um, when I was 21, I believe. Okay. Um, and uh, my dad is why I'm a cook. Um, and so... The cook, I don't know, have you ever seen that cookbook? It's awesome. It's like there, so Edna Lewis was, um, started in Savannah, at, you know, cooking in a guest house basically. And um, then she came to Atlanta and she was cooking in black only restaurants yeah. for years and years. And she taught Scott Peacock how to cook and was in the- Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in okay. the late 70s, early 80s, I guess mid 80s. Um, New Southern food was born really out of Scott Peacock's relationship with Edna Lewis. Um, their relationship made Crook's Corners what, what it is. Um, um, it's super interesting. We don't really talk about this, but the reason that all that's on the map is because Scott Peacock, um, uh, Bill Neal, um, Bill Smith were gay men and associated with James Beard. Um, socially and that's why these things are on the map and it was really to me it's very important that we recognize that um, non-straight white male southern culture fed the change in the culinary direction of the south and most people don't really want to acknowledge that um, and it was very important to me that my dad gave me that cookbook and that I learned from that and learned the direction. I mean, I also have more family connection. And the reason I know a lot of this is my wife's uncle bought the building and made Crook's Corner what it is and no then sold it to Jean and Bill. Oh. Um, my uncle Cam, her uncle Cam, I mean, I've, we've been married 26 years, <laughs> yeah. so he's my uncle too, but he opened a barbecue restaurant there named Crook's Corner. Um, and then with Jean along, with Gene and then sold it out to Gene and Gene made it what it is. But um, I just think it's really, inf really important that that's why the South ended up where we are culinarily. But also like the, how important black culture is to food in general, but especially to our food in the South. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way of acknowledging our togetherness. Jacob says his father was always exploring the idea of contradiction of being a Southern white male and being conscientious of the impact they had on culture and racism in the South. 
And that's why this cookbook is so important to me, he explains. Also, the food's great in it. Jacob says he used the gift of Southern cooking to bridge the gap between Southern food and new American cuisine when he opened Table, his first restaurant in Asheville. He says he also paid close attention to Edna's advice on how to treat food. In her cookbook, Edna focuses heavily on preservation and canning with a very simple approach. Take a few good ingredients and just don't screw them up, Jacob suggests. When vegetables are good, just treat them simply and let them show their flavor. You know, I mean, it, 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 it explores real Southern food. There's nothing groundbreaking at all, but it is, mm-hmm. it really does, it kind of, it's built around, for lack of any better way to say it, farm to table eating, which I don't really like that phrase. Um, because what are you it's talking just, about? It's brand new. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it's just how you're supposed to eat. But I think that we, especially in Southern food, we forget how important that is actually sometimes. Jacob has always known how he wanted to be treated as a chef and how chefs would be treated in the kitchens where he leads. The machismo culture, the you're not working hard enough culture is wrong, he says. I'm going to take a run. I'm going to hang out with my family. I want to work around what is healthy. And I wish that that was an acceptable way to be in this career. Now with five restaurants under his belt, Table, The Hangout, Cultura, All Day Darling, and El Gallo, Jacob knows exactly what he wants to do when it comes to the food he serves. Thanks to advice and help from Edna, along with his personal history with Southern cuisine, the food served at table is what he calls seasonal new American. It was always for me an uh, exploration of both my roots as a Southerner and the big wide world. And, um, you know, food is, food is sustenance and necessary, but it's also this, this art or and um, the backbone of culture. Catherine Campbell talking to Asheville's own Jacob Sessoms. We'll miss you, Catherine. Seriously, thank you so much for all the work you've done over the years. I couldn't have asked for a better partner in this show, nor a better friend. We'll be back with our new season of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour in a couple months, and boy, do we have some big announcements for you. But in the meantime, be sure to head to our webpage if you'd like to find the stories you heard today or catch up on past episodes. That's at dirty-spoon.com. Cook a little, but it's not a lot to shout about. It's kind of mean cuisine. So I eat out. Hey, they know me at the Greek and the Czech and the Itai and the Indian too. And they all say, here comes that sad American man again. What are we gonna do? Well, you can put me at the table in the corner in the back unless you got one in the telephone booth. I'm here and I'm alone again, it's sad, but it's the truth No, I'm not expecting anyone, is that beyond belief? Give me the menu, take away the candle, never mind the aperitif They got a couple of couples, a trio and a foursome They even got a party of eight I'm getting that look, I wish I'd brought a book Or better yet, I wish I'd already ate What's the matter with you people? You're telling jokes and you're holding hands and you're talking with your mouths full. Well, the waiter comes up and he asks me, How is it, sir? Is everything all right? 
fine, but I feel like a fool Cause I'm eating alone tonight Don't say I was here at all But all my loved ones think I'll take a check, no sweet, no coffee No after dinner drink I can cook a little, but it's not a lot to shout about Ooh, it's kind of mean cuisine So I eat up the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Woods. To a time and a place where 
Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Idols, Karen Paris, Aurora Midlake, Renata Zagur, Loudon Rainwright III, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, Thomas Bartlett, Bent, Roiksop, The Scatolites, John Bryan, and Oliver Arnolds. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and I write some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. WPVM.